Welcome to another episode of the Sounder at Heart podcast. I am Jeremiah O'Shan, joined by Tim Foss and Mickey Turner. Uh, we have, it's been a busy week in uh, the world of the Sounders, a uh, really busy week, maybe the busiest week of this offseason. And I think probably the time where it feels like now we, we have a, a real idea of where this team, what this team's going to look like and, and what's possible. Uh, so to, to kind of tick off the big news items, Sanders signed Jao Paulo as a designated player last week. Uh, then they signed Jamar Gomez Andrade uh, this week. And then the next day, they signed, uh, or I guess that day maybe even, they played their first, uh, pub- or I shouldn't say their first public. It wasn't public. It was a closed-door scrimmage. But media at least were able to watch it. Uh, they beat Sacramento Republic 6-2. to two. We got our first look at Jao Paulo in that game. And then on Thursday – I was I was taken aback by this. I wasn't expecting it. Maybe you were, Mickey, but the MLS uh, players union and owners announced an agreement, not a, a ratified deal, but an agreement on the CBA. Uh, that seemed. I mean, I was totally dumbstruck by by that. And it looks to be one of these deals that is good for both both sides. Probably got what they wanted. Um, but yeah, let's just start there, Mickey. Were you you've been following this much closer than I think either of us? Were you surprised that this news came out when it did? Uh, a little bit, yeah, for sure. Um, I had talked to a couple of people behind the scenes, and they seemed pretty confident that a deal was going to get done um, soon. Uh, I think you know, the, I think the main tip off is was obviously the extension for one week uh, of the CBA. You're not extending a deal only for a week, only to have to extend it another week down the line and kind of just play this kind of incremental game. You either just extend it for a couple of weeks or a month. Uh, and then just see where you are from there. So that combined with the uh, you know the lack of rhetoric from the union as far as MLS is being unreasonable, they're not meeting our demands, et cetera, et cetera. The league is always dead silent on this, so you were never going to get anything from them on the record. But even off the record and behind the scenes, there wasn't much uh, being said. Asked Terry Ship about it after the Sounders uh, preseason game. He was very coy, so he probably knew yeah, something was up. That was a day before it was signed. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it was announced. Yeah, I mean, and he he was he did not say you know he did not tip off his hand. He he had a pretty good poker face. So that you know, in hindsight, that was probably a bit of a a tell, as it were. So yeah, uh, you know, I was surprised at the timing. Not that they got a deal done. Uh, there was a lot of incentive for the sides to come to an agreement ahead of the season. Uh, it, you know, MLS is not in a place where they can uh, survive long work stoppages as a league. Um, they've had, they've damaged bigger leagues than MLS in the United States, uh, Major League Baseball being one of the primary ones. So uh, all of that combined to say that, yeah, it was uh, a deal always looked likely, um, but it was it's fair to say that the timing was a little surprising. Well, and I don't say this to call you out or put you on the spot here, but it was not that long ago where you thought that a uh, a deal – that, that a strike was like in the 50-50 range, uh, maybe even more like 60-40. What do you think changed? Um, and and I, I say this because I assume something must have changed behind the scenes that really uh, pushed this towards an agreement. Yeah, I think uh, they were they were mostly uh, able to come to an agreement on the major principles that they uh, that they were dealing with. Uh, I think once the uh, players' union kind of uh, – you know, relented a little bit on TAM, 
uh, that was one of the, the, the breakthrough issues because, we, as we all know, uh, the Players Association absolutely hates targeted allocation money, and they you know would sooner see it shot in the sun. But I think they were understanding that the league was very – positive towards the targeted allocation money uh, initiative. They think it's worked. I think it's fair to say it has worked um, in bringing a higher profile uh, player into the league. And also the union could get what they wanted uh, without having to give up TAM, which is to allow more of their rank and file access to that money, which is really what their main concern was. So right. if, uh, if the league is loosening the reins on who can get that money, then does the union really care about the designation and how it's applied necessarily? Uh, you know, the answer is probably no. And as it is, it, TAM is going to start re- being uh, lessened over the, the course of the CBA uh, to the point where it's possible that TAM doesn't exist in 2024 when they're negotiating the, uh, the next CBA. So they got, they got a lot of what they wanted, and it wasn't worth holding up a deal uh, on, that, on that issue. And then the other stuff was stuff that they were likely to get, always get, such as improved free agency and charter flights and stuff like that. Although the the free agency the 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 level to, like it, I think some improvement in free agency was was like you said maybe it was inevitable but I think this was shocking the degree to which it was was downright I mean this might be now in some ways it's the least restrictive free agency in all the major American sports in that a player can realistically uh, get free agency you know, within, within five seasons of joining the league, you know, if you sign the, in, if you sign as a 19 year old, uh, which is becoming increasingly common in this league, like homegrown players routinely are going to be free agents at 24 uh, in, in MLS now. I mean that, you know, we might not be there next year, but I, I thought I saw a, a statistic that the union put out that something like, it went from like 10% of players were theoretically eligible for, for uh, free agency, and now 25% of the league is eligible for free agency. I mean, that's a huge, a huge increase. It's now what 20? You have to be 25 years old with five years of experience, right? Uh, 24 and five. 24 and five. Yeah, I mean that's, I mean that's pretty yeah, good. It's you incredible. Mean, you, it's incredible. I mean, you compare that to to Major League Baseball, and and granted, there's restrictions within that, like how big of a raise they can get and all that kind of stuff, and that maybe camps it down. But I mean. We're going to see free agency is going to be a real thing, I would think, at this point. Yeah, well, it's, I think it's going to be great. Um, it's going to provide a lot of off-season talking points and chatter for, for us, uh, you know, selfishly to, uh, to discuss. And I think the league, you know, once, they, once that door was opened, I think the Players Association was basically able to convince them that they'd still be able to maintain the cost controls they want while allowing additional freedom of movement. And that's really what the players were, were more focused on. Sure, they'd love to have uh, free agency where they could uh, get whatever contract they can bargain for right. um, with, uh, with MLS, but that's, that was never going to happen. And, and you know, I, don't, I didn't see anything to say that the players were, were seeking something like that. So freedom of movement is really where it's at. And, and you know, MLS, for their part, still gets to keep, you know, keep the costs under control by limiting the races that they can get uh, signing with new teams. Yeah, so – one of the things that I look at as someone who is currently a member of a union who has been on bargaining committees in the past is for a rank and file member of the union. This is such a huge improvement. This CBA gives you more access to more money. It increases the pool of money that you have access to. It increases the charter flight thing seems like a pretty big deal. It went from being a minimum of zero to a maximum of 
essentially two round trips. And now a minimum it's a, of eight, essentially. Right now it's a minimum of, of well, a minimum of four, four round, round trips, four round trips. So eight, but levels. it, but it maxes out at, at eight at the end of the, which, you know, half, the, half their road games potentially are going to be uh, on charters. And I would think that most, most of the times, like, I don't know that there's a lot of practical use to have more than eight charters, yep. frankly. Like a lot of these flights are relatively short. And I would imagine that, you know, like the Sounders are probably still going to take a bus to Portland and Vancouver because it's just easier than, than any sort of flight. Uh, you know, the, the, the places where it's going to make a big difference is these cross-country flights. The Sounders, just to give you an example, the Sounders are probably taking four cross-country flights this year there's a pretty good chance all those are now charters. Uh, similarly, any international champions league uh, has to be chartered. Any internet, any playoff game has to be chartered. Although I would imagine there's going to be an exception to that, but yeah. uh, like, I, I can't imagine that uh, New York city is going to have to charter to play the Red Bulls. <laughs> well, they may be playing in the same stadium. At they that may be playing in the same stadium. Exactly. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's, it's like for a rank and file member, this is such a huge, like, I would think this is going to pass with overwhelming majorities. Now, if there's something that the players gave up, it's something that I think fans probably care about more than the average player. Uh, and that's the overall pool of money that MLS is making available to players on a per team basis is actually only going up marginally. It's like 5% a year. Um, but, the, but again, it's, it's at the cost of there being so much more access to all the players. Well, and that's yeah. also only until what twenty twenty three when the twenty twenty yeah exactly signed and potentially a big introduction of new money is made. Right, and that's and that was another huge huge gain that Tim kind of alludes to in this is that the the players were able to for the first time the players were able to get uh, their their salary budget tied to some sort of external. Uh, metric and in this case it was uh, the new uh, TV contract which is due to be uh, expired in 2022 and re presumably renewed for 23 and 24 which are the last two years of the CBA uh, the players are now going to get a percentage of that do you did you I, I was kind of confused though how that's being worked out Mickey did you understand that I, I got the basics um, essentially uh, right now uh, just for a point of reference um, the TV deal gives MLS um, and U.S. Soccer, they jointly pool those rights, about $90 million, of which about $70 million goes to MLS. Um, that's obviously not a lot of money per team. That's less than $3 million per team now, and it's going to be even less as expansion ramps up here in the next couple of years and we get to uh, 30 teams. So essentially what they're doing is, my understanding is, um, there are certain benchmarks that are in place already that are tied to player uh, salaries and what have you. What is going to be accounted for in the new CBA is any additional monies um, after the owners are made whole for their uh, dilution of shares due to expansion. Um, anything after that, if there's an increase, 25% of that will go to the players and will be tied to uh, the player's salary. So it's kind of a, a double level. Uh, first, there has to be an increase, and secondly, the owners have to be made whole because there are more teams coming into the league, and thus they're getting less money per team. After that, whatever's left over, 25% uh, of that uh, is made available to the players. So I think that's essentially how it works. Um, 
and you know, Foose said on the conference call that Bob Foose, uh, essentially there were a couple of ways they could have tried to do it, but it with the way that we don't know what the next TV deal is going to look like and how broadcasting is going to look, um, you know, generally, um, especially with you know s- streaming rights and all that kind of stuff. Um, he wanted to take kind of a basic approach to uh, tying the revenue. And that's how we uh, figured it was the best way to do it. And you can't really blame them. We don't know what the TV deal is going to look like in 2023, especially as we all know, MLS's uh, TV ratings um, are, there's a lot of room, room for improvement, let's say. I think especially considering that that TV deal probably encompasses rights for the 2026 World Cup. Mm-hmm safe to assume that it's at least going to be an improved deal not that it's necessarily going to be incredible but seems like a good a smart move by the players association at least yeah and that was something that i guess i didn't honestly pick up in but when i did my i did an interview with peter tamazawa on no sorietes and he kind of alluded to this possibility that uh or he I don't know. I didn't pick up on it, but a couple of people listening to it made it sound like he suggested the, uh, the like you said, the World Cup was going to be part of that uh, that contract, which that's a big deal. I mean, that, that ends up being potentially a big deal, I would think. Well, Fox already has the rights to that one um, as a part of the, uh, the shadiness that went on with the 2022 bid oh. in Qatar um, and this, you know, the change of schedule for that one. That's obviously going to impact Fox. So they were basically, I think, given the 2026 is a make good. Oh, but I guess the um, World Cup qualifying at least would be. In yeah, qualifying is a different um, issue. But the actual World Cup, yeah, it's already, it's already baked in the cake, essentially. Um, so we'll see uh, how that impacts things. But, you know, it's, you know, a lot of it has to do with the domestic rights. And that's uh, a lot of what we're talking about. But, of course, you know, that's going to be tied to the World Cup it, 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 just because of the nature of that tournament. Yeah, and so the other big element that I think is going to kind of touch Sounders fans here is the the DP rule, which mm-hmm. is interesting. They didn't actually – like, it seems what they've done is they've built in a mechanism that would allow them to change it in the future, but the way they wrote it makes it sound like it's not being changed immediately or else they would have just probably written it in as changed. But it sounds like uh, basically what they've done is they've, they've reserved the right to change the way the third DP spot is used. And currently now, as you probably know, all three spots are effectively unlimited. You can spend as much money on transfer fees and salaries on those three spots, and they, they only count against the cap at a set amount. Well, uh, in, this, in this new uh, CBA, the way that it's going to work potentially is that there would be some sort of limitation if the player is – 23 or older than 23 and exactly how that the mechanism of that works is probably going to have to be worked out and maybe that's also why it's it's still unwritten but uh it, it essentially sounds like the league is moving toward a world in which and then they also have this this other new uh mechanism built in that was also unclear but that would encourage teams to basically sign 18 to 22 year olds uh, and they would count at a, some sort of diminished amount towards the salary cap. Um, but it also made it sound like there could potentially be as many as six DPs on a team, uh, but three of them would 
would have to be, or four of them potentially would have to be 23 or younger. Is that a, is that a correct read of all that, Nikki? Yeah, yeah. And uh, that was the question I asked uh, Foos on the call directly because it was obviously unclear on that third DP and what exactly is happening. Um, you know, it, it is not in effect right now. Um, it may be in effect starting in 2021. And that's up to the league. Um, but they, the, I think the thing that the league wanted was they wanted control over how to, uh, how to allocate that third DP slot. And that's basically outside the scope of the CBA, kind of like how TAM was this time around. Uh, that was one of the, you know, the things that the uh, Players Association disliked is that basically the league controlled TAM and every aspect of it. Um, and we saw that out here with Jovan Jones and Fry having uh, TAM deals rejected. Um, and so the league wanted control over that provision for the third DP slot to potentially reduce it. So you had to either, as you say, have someone who's under 23 and you can pay them whatever you want or over 23, you would only be able to play in the, uh, the DP threshold plus a million dollars. I think it runs out, uh, comes out to. So um, it'll, it'll go up a little bit as, as the uh, CBA goes along, but um, you know, Foose is, you know, I'm, you know, I'm sure he was, you know, not thrilled to give that up, but he indicated that the, it was important to the league. Um, and it does allow them to restrict spending in this specific way. Um, and we heard, you know, when we heard the reports about that originally, it was that teams like Vancouver and Dallas uh, were wanting to kind of hold the line on spending on that third DP slot um, for competitive reasons. And so the league apparently convinced the Players Association that uh, that was uh, of such importance to them that uh, the Players Association was willing to, to see ground on that point. And that money's going to be spent elsewhere, but just in a different way. Yeah, and I, I think as this is like one of those things where labor, like, like lowercase labor in general kind of comes into play. The reality is that the union had eh, a half dozen players maybe who would be potentially impacted, like current members mm -hmm. that were current, who would be currently impacted by this third DP rule. And there's I only two teams. Right, exactly. Like, there's just not like there's just not that many unit members who would be negatively impacted by uh, the league reducing the way that like in frank and frankly they could probably like get rid of DPs altogether and the union would the union would say like well as long as you're going to put that money back into the into the general pool we don't care what you do with DPs but uh, I mean again this is like one of those things where fans probably care a lot more about it than the the players union does. Um, but, like, I know, like, Sam Stashkel and Paul Tenorio were really kind of down on this. Yeah. Any limitation to the DP rule because it does allow teams to kind of, you know, it allows teams to push the envelope spending-wise. But um, from a union perspective, I, I think that they probably were kind of happy to let that go. Yeah, uh, that was a chip they were willing to give up. Right, exactly. Clear. Um, so, anyway, uh, that kind of, I guess that, that – Am I missing anything from either? Did either of you pick up something in the in in the CBA that maybe we've we've glossed over or not focused on that deserves more attention? No, I think we hit all the big points. Uh, as you said, it's it's. It, I think this is a win-win for everybody. The league is still able to control the the rate of spending, um, but the players got some substantial advances in a number of areas. And, you know, I think they're happy to kind of have the taste of the 2015 negotiations out of their mouth. I think that kind of exercises those demons, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, because, you know, you know, they were raked over the coals pretty good for uh, their negotiating in that, in that 
in that uh, in that time. So uh, I think they're I think everyone's happy about about how this turned out. Although you know, I'll say I think that this deal makes the 2010 deal look way like it makes it look way more to me like the union actually knew what they were doing and playing the long game mm-hmm. because essentially what they got the league to do is just put in all this extra money in in form of TAM and yeah there was a short term pain and and in frankly embarrassment from the union perspective that the league was just like hey here's four million more dollars that we weren't willing to give you before but uh yeah we'll just kind of throw this on top of the pile but you know what we're gonna spend it exactly how we want to but now that's their money like that money was just kind of baked into the current cba and so and and so in some ways that's like a genius move i mean if you look at the the raw way that uh this lines up is like in 2015 the the league was basically spending three and a half million in terms of league funded money per team and now we're at nine million basically yeah and that's and that's before the that's before the second you know the the discretionary tam that they still have i mean that's a i mean you're talking about essentially like a two and a half time increase over the course of five years that's you know that's monumental and they got free agency uh limited and they got though, free agency limited and they got charter flights yeah yeah it's it's a good it's a good deal i think by any reasonable measure uh, and so uh, it, it's it's good. We'll have uh, soccer to talk about uh, for the next uh, five years. I know we don't have to talk about CBAs anymore for like the next. Yeah. That's, that's that that in itself is glorious. Well, uh, I'm a little sad about that, but uh, yeah, right. No, that's that's fair. It it kind of pulls the rug out from you under a little bit, doesn't it? But yeah. um, <laughs> I, I I I also think that what this does that this deal did is it also underscored, I think, the uh, intelligence with which. Garth Lagaway went about conducting his offseason. Now we can all, I think we've all been frustrated by the lack of signings uh, relative up until the last week that it was just going slower than we had thought that we thought that they, you know, for all his talk, we thought that you got to bring someone in. Right. And I think that it, it all kind of took a little bit longer, but they now have uh, Jao Paulo under contract. They now have uh, Jamar Gomez Andrade under contract. They've, address their biggest needs that they had in the off season. They also brought in Shane O'Neill, obviously. Um, but I think what it did is it, like he avoided committing himself to potentially long-term commitments that would be really hard to extricate himself from. Uh, and I think that makes the Zhao Paulo signing really, really clever in that he basically got him in on a one-year loan. And then best I can tell if they decide to bring him back, they won't have to bring him back as a DP because they're only going to have to probably pay half of his transfer fee if, uh, as opposed to what they would have had to pay if they paid it all up front. Um, and then the Gomez Andrade thing is, you know, a pretty standard TAM deal. And the way that I, my kind of back of the envelope figuring was that uh, between losing Victor Rodriguez or taking these guys off the books, uh, Victor Rodriguez, Kim Kihi, Roman Torres, Brad Smith, Emmanuel Sacchini, all of those come off the books I figured they're saving somewhere in the neighborhood of 1.2 million in TAM. Um, and best I can tell, they're going to spend about 600K in TAM to buy down uh, Javier Arriaga. And I'm just kind of guessing based on the numbers that have been out there that they're probably going to spend a similar amount on uh, Gomez Andrade. Um, I mean, that seems like a pretty decent trade-off. Uh, and assuming they still have, at, if they, even if they don't have any, a whole bunch of TAM available, my assumption is they're going to have general allocation money now available that they can go and spend 
either now or more likely in the summer. Yeah, on uh, and on uh, Jao Paulo, I, I if if his first appearance on uh, in that friendly against Sacramento is anything to uh, to to gauge his progress on, they'll be uh, signing him as soon as they're able to uh, uh, as soon as they're able to buy him outright because he looked incredible. But um, yeah, yeah, it you know I was never as down on uh, Garth's uh, you know his his philosophy as as some were, and it's understandable that people were frustrated that they weren't bringing anybody in, but. Uh, he was steadfast in his in his belief that you just it's a terrible idea to start, uh, you know, handing out a bunch of money without knowing what the rules of the CBA are. And we have some significant changes to how the uh, the, the rules are going to operate. So I think not just the least on that of level, which is is yeah. is the fact that there's not that much more money. Like yeah. that's like that's a huge like uh, these teams that went out and got themselves committed to these long term deals. I think probably with the assumption that oh well, there's going to be more money available anyway. I mean, I don't know. I didn't go through all the contracts, but my assumption is some of these teams are going to be, you know, maybe a little bit, uh, you know, hamstrung in a year or two. Yeah, yeah. I think yeah, nothing really is going to change this year, obviously. But right. yeah, starting in 2021, uh, when the new CBA comes into play, uh, yeah, with a lot of these changes, uh, you know, uh, you know, the TAM being converted to G, uh, general allocation money, the cap, as you said, not going up very much. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's definitely, I think, it's, uh, Gar's strategy has been borne out. Uh, by how the deal uh, or how the CBA looks. So, uh, yeah, he, he's in good position. And uh, I think that's kind of born of his uh, philosophy, as you say, not to get tied up into bad long-term contracts or bad long-term contracts. Um, and none of those are currently on the books, I think it's fair to say. Um, he's done, obviously, an expert do- job of getting out of bad contracts uh, right. when they have come about as well. So uh, that's uh, you know another feather in his cap. Hey, so, Tim, you were at the game uh, – all of us were at the game, uh, but I'm curious, what were some of your impressions from Xiao Paulo as well as, you know, just in general, like, uh, you know, we saw Christian Roldan for, uh, you know, I guess we, it's not the first time we've seen Christian Roldan at, at right mid, but uh, we saw him there. I mean, what were some of your, your takeaways from that game? I think Joao Paulo was super exciting to watch um, even before. So he had a like secondary assist on one of the goals where he played just a, unbelievable pass to Calvin Leardon that put him into more space than I think you ever expect to find in a game like that. (laughs) But he like, that was not the first of those balls that he tried that just like didn't quite come off, uh, which is pretty incredible to think about. Like he hasn't been with the team for much more than a week at that point to imagine how he's going to, dial those in for guys once he's played with them for a month or two, especially, you know, imagining him hitting balls over the top for Jordan Morris is very exciting. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I mean, and one of the, uh, Harry ship kind of alluded to this is that this was the first and, you know, potentially only time that Jao Paulo will play on CenturyLink turf uh, before the game on the 27th. Uh, and he didn't seem bothered at all by by it. Yeah, I think just watching how he sort of went about his business in that game, both in, you know, just constant movement to be available to his teammates, uh, work recovering the ball, some physical challenges that he got into were really impressive. Um, just seeing how 
Christian and Kelvin Leardom worked down the right side. I don't think it's going to be, you know, quite the same as like the Brad Smith, Victor Rodriguez left side that we saw from the Sounders before, but I think there's definitely a potential to see a somewhat like lopsided towards the right asymmetrical movement from the team, just with the amount of technical players already sort of veering towards that side. Um, I think getting a glimpse of how that's going to look uh, the second like 45 minute chunk of the game, the young players all looked pretty good. I mean, it wasn't, there wasn't anything that really blew your mind in that portion of it. But if you consider that Sacramento really ran out more of their first choice for that second half where Sacramento split their players minutes into 60 minute chunks and had their, approximation of a first choice lineup for that second half and you know last year they were a pretty solidly mid-table USL team and what was effectively a Tacoma Defiance team for that last 45 minutes for the Sounders beat them three to one in that chunk. I I hadn't really thought of it that way but that's a good point. I think it's pretty reassuring to see yeah, yeah, I was I was pretty impressed with the with the second unit, uh, all things considered. Uh, Dylan, obviously, uh, as as Schmetzer said, it was a handful. Scored a couple of uh, nice goals. Um, you know, they were you know defensively they were a bit shaky at times, but uh, you know again that's to be expected, especially early in the preseason. Um, and yeah, that definitely bodes well for you know some of the depth that they're going to need as they uh, go through the course of the season and they still have a couple of slots uh, players they can sign. Uh, Spencer said, uh, you know, they've been dangling, dangling that carrot out there for a couple of them. Um, and so there's certainly some motivation there, but yeah, I, I thought, you know, it was a very impressive display. Um, even if it was just a preseason game against mm-hmm. the USL side, um, it was, it's, it was nice to see them, you know, looking pretty dynamic uh, throughout the course of the game. Yeah, and I, I thought that, uh, you know, I think we're at the point now where I'm maybe going to be a little surprised if if at least two of, if not all three of Sam Rogers, Josh Atencio, and Shandon Hopio uh, get signed to first-team contracts. But the one guy who is still with uh, the first team, who, frankly, seems like he's kind of come out of nowhere. Like, I knew who he was. I've been you know, kind of aware of him for at least a year. But Chris Haygart uh, is still hanging out with the first team. I don't know if he went down to Mexico City or not. But this is a guy who uh, came to the Sounders Academy, I want to say, a couple years ago. Uh, He kind of started to make a name for himself during that GA Cup uh, championship that the the Sounders Academy won. Uh, But he has quietly you know, proven himself very capable. He doesn't necessarily look like a central midfielder in MLS, but he seems very comfortable there. And he, uh, like you said, he was, he's, he's one of the, he's, I think the only non, the only amateur who is still playing with the first team at that Republic game. Yeah. He was the only sort of not on a professional contract of some sort player still with them. Um, he like he spent a lot of time in the second half of last season training with the first team, um, probably more to make up numbers than anything, but just the fact that... That he was Schmetzer, the guy chosen. Yeah, Schmetzer has seen a lot of him and kept 
choosing him to make up numbers in training, I think, says a lot, especially considering that he's still training with the first team. I don't know. I know there were plans for him to go to college probably after this year, uh, but not sure where those plans stand at the moment. I imagine if he gets an offer to play with the first team, he probably would forgo. You would yeah. I don't know him personally, so I can't really speak well, to that, but good in his 45 minutes. Yeah, and uh, the, and I guess on the other side, Ethan Dobleri is, is another guy who is uh, not signed to a professional contract, who had been playing with the first team a lot. You've probably heard of him. He is uh, considered a pretty high-level prospect inside the, the Sounders Academy. Um, I suspect the Sounders are, have offered him a defiance contract, uh, but he was not in the Republic game, and uh, all indications seem to be that he's going to go to college, but that was that only makes the Chris Hagard thing even more interesting that, you know, here is this, you know, kind of, you know, really high level prospect that, that wasn't there. And Chris Hagard is there uh, playing right alongside Danny Leva in, in a central midfield. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, that was kind of an, an, an interesting little twist and it's going to be uh, fun to see who ends up going down to uh, Mexico city that we we at least have seen that uh, Jamar has, uh, met up with the team there. I'm told he has not finalized his his uh, paperwork yet, uh, but they're hoping to get that all finalized before the before the first game of the season. Um, I don't I, I I don't know that the Mexico situation complicates it in any significant way, but uh, he is down there. He's not completely cleared to play, uh, but he is apparently cleared to to train, which is not all that uncommon. Uh, as far as, and Mickey, maybe you understand this better, but the way I understand is, is traditionally what happens is a player will come to the United States on a tourist visa. He'll sign all his paperwork. He'll do some training. And then once he gets his interview to do, uh, to get his work visa, he'll leave the country, usually go to Vancouver, do the interview at the embassy in the, in, in Vancouver, and then he'll cross back over with the work visa. Um, I'm guessing that he doesn't need a visa to be in Mexico. And so, therefore, he can probably, uh, if he can get his his interview scheduled at the U.S. Embassy in Mexico City, my guess is that he can just do it there, and maybe it actually streamlines the process. Yeah, that that'd be my thought. I, I don't want to say that's the exact process for sure. I'm I'm pretty sure you have the process right on on when they come here first, um, but it doesn't seem like it's going to be too much of an issue. Um, these things are uh, visas are usually granted as as a matter of course, unless you're a member of the New England Re- Revolution. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I'd expect, yeah, we'll see him. Uh, we'll see him uh, suiting up for the Sounders uh, right at or before the first CCL game. Whether he starts um, is obviously another issue. Yeah, I don't know if either one of you have any uh, big hot takes on having the the. A Champions League game moved from uh, Tegucigalpa down to San Pedro Sula. Uh, it it seems like kind of maybe. I mean, I guess you're taking them taking Olympia out of their actual home stadium and making them go a couple hours away uh, to the capital. So maybe that's an advantage to the Sounders. But uh, weather-wise, it seems like you're kind of just trading one kind of unfortunate weather uh, environment for another. Uh, but I don't know if do either of you have any thoughts on that move and. I mean, it had to happen. I mean, uh, by all accounts, their their actual stadium, their home stadium, was falling apart. Uh, 
um, <laughs> at the seam, so to speak. So, you know, it, it didn't get cleared. So you, you got to move. And as you say, I think the temperature difference is, uh, uh, is negligible. You're basically, I think, uh, trading a, uh, a dry heat for more humidity or right. uh, vice yeah, versa. I think, that's, I think you're absolutely right there. That's kind of how I read it too, is that it's maybe a little bit, uh, you're up at a little bit of elevation. It's only 3,000 feet, which I guess I, I got raked over the coals for suggesting that was playing at elevation. But um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I guess that's not – you don't quite feel, start feeling uh, elevation effects at, at that height, apparently. But they, they – like, uh, Tegucigalpa is a little bit in the mountains. Uh, San Pedro Sula is definitely not in the mountains, but it's a little bit – it's about five degrees hotter. I suppose it's probably also um, a more humid heat, like you said. Uh, so maybe it, maybe in some ways it makes it worse in that way. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it seems pretty negligible from the Sounders perspective. I can't imagine if Olympia fans were going to go, they were going to be deterred by a change of venue, especially with a few weeks of planning still available to them. And, and uh, I think Olympia is kind of one of like the national team. I think their fan base is kind of throughout Honduras. Yeah. yeah. Um, as a quick aside, Chris Hegart is in Mexico City with the first team. He is. Stories, yeah. Oh, well, look at that. Uh, live, uh, like doing research live on the podcast. Good job. Well, I think, yeah, I think the Sounders are due to put out a, an updated roster here pretty soon. Um, and so that'll give us some idea of which of the kids are, uh, you, know, uh, you know, have caught uh, Schmetzer's eye to the point where uh, they're going to be down in Mexico City. Because um, obviously the Defiance is training as well. And so, yeah, it, it'll be interesting to see uh, which uh, which of those uh, kids are, are getting close. If, if Higgard's getting that close, uh, that would be definitely kind of one that comes out of nowhere. Uh, so the other kind of bottom of the raw, there is you know, like those are kind of fun decisions to be thinking about because it's really future based. The one that I don't I don't know if I would classify it as fun, but it is an important decision that the Sounders have to make. Is currently there is no backup right back on the on the roster, uh, and it looks. Like Alex Roldan had his option declined in the at the end of the season, uh, we had been told that we that the Sounders expected him to basically try out again this year. Uh, in fact, he did try out. He's remained with the team, uh, and now it's starting to maybe look like he has the inside track on the backup right back, which was not a position he had played uh, prior to this preseason. I don't know if he had played it at all, uh, but he's looked okay when we've seen him there. Uh, is that what you both expect to see happen is for him to get signed as the backup right back or the Sounders maybe going to go off the board and bring someone in from outside the organization to do that? I think he's got the job for the time being until they find somebody better, I guess is the, the best way to put it. But Smetcher said after the, uh, after the scrimmage that uh, he, he did well, uh, scored a goal, obviously. Um, he's got to work on some of the defensive principles of uh, playing uh, right back, but he's got, you know, certainly the athleticism and then he's got kind of the, uh, uh, the, he's got midfielders, uh, you know, qualities on the ball that he can move back to the uh, right back position. Um, and so, yeah, I, it seems all indications are that he's got, the job is his to lose. Um, so unless he falters in the next uh, couple of weeks, uh, I'd expect we'll see him signed uh, for the 2020 season. Yeah, I think especially considering that the team seems very intent on continuing this plan of building out of the back, which, I mean, it was a scrimmage, and of course they're going to 
specific to that, but they really, you know, were making sure whenever it, whenever they had the opportunity, really, that they went from goalkeeper to center backs to outside backs to midfield. Uh, and the way that they have Kelvin Leardom play, I think he makes a lot of sense as the backup for that position. He's definitely capable of getting forward and contributing in possession. Uh, his defensive tendencies, it kind of, it can be apparent that he hasn't played right back extensively, but I thought he looked good in that scrimmage and Jimmy Traore will coach him up and make sure he knows what he's doing at that position. If that's the direction they choose to go. And I, I think that, Makes a lot of sense, at least until you decide you're going to bring in your long-term Kelvin Leardon replacement. Yeah, that that situation does seem like it is maybe in a little bit of flux. Uh, but it's it's probably worth noting that uh, Saad Abdul uh, Abdul Salam didn't join Sunders training camp until like the last week of last preseason, and mm-hmm. so it's not it would not be completely unheard of for the Sounders to make some sort of last-minute addition. And it's also worth keeping in mind that uh, just even if they don't make a, a move before the Champions League game, I, I think I may have heard that Alex Roldan is actually on that Champions League roster and that he doesn't actually have to be t- signed to a first-team contract. Like There's some kind of weird uh, mechanism by which he's a, they, could, they can kind of sign him to the Champions League contract without signing him to an MLS contract. Um, I'm not 100% sure on that, but for some reason that's stuck in my head that he might actually uh, that there's a way that they could have him available for the first champions league game and without necessarily signing him to a first team contract that would guarantee him through the year. Um, so it'll be interesting This you know, it's, it's always possible. I guess what I'm saying is that uh, when they return to the United States somewhere around February 22nd, that, you know, all of a sudden there could be some new right back that's trying for a spot in the camp, but at least for the time being, uh, I, I think that one definitely shocked me um, in terms of like what I thought the future of Alex Roldan would be. And I mean, Frank, I mean, I, I think it's a nice story uh, and you know, he's got some upside. He's, he's clearly a skilled player and if he can do the defensive work and the defensive work was really kind of his calling card on as a right midfielder. Uh, I, I don't think he is an MLS level right midfielder. So maybe yeah. it makes sense. I think it makes all the sense in the world that they think they can get uh, something out of him. Um, you know, he's only, it's only a second year in the league, uh, well, you know, his development third year, you know, third year. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, he is at kind of based on his age, yet, you know, kind of at the end of his development curve. Yeah. Um, so it depends on how quickly he can pick up some of those, uh, defensive principles that Schmetzer was talking about, uh, to see if it's, if it's a conversion that will ultimately work. Yeah. Well, uh, that's probably a good place to call this a show. Uh, thank you so much for listening. I am Jeremiah Oshan, to the Sounder at Heart podcast, that is. Uh, I am Jeremiah Oshan, signing off on behalf of Mickey Turner and Tim Foss. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us, and we will see you next time.